Welcome to The Pick List, the podcast for curious food industry minds. Every week, we bring you our pick of articles from the world of food and grocery retail and explore what they tell us about how our food industry is changing in these extraordinary times. We chat about the major news from nationals and big trade titles, but we also love unearthing gems from niche publications and sharing brilliant, quirky food stories that change the way we think about the food we eat and produce. I'm Julia Glotz. And I'm Laura Ryan. It's great to have you with us. Let's start the show. Hi, Julia. It's episode 18 of The Pick List. I'm not quite sure how we've got to episode 18, but we have. And we've got a fantastic show lined up, haven't we? We do. We are joined by Mary Johnson this week from Meat and Livestock Australia. Um, Mary is based in the UK uh, and deals a lot with trade policy. So she brings a really interesting perspective on the global meat trade, uh, but also the wider food and grocery sector. We also had quite a few meaty articles for us to chat about. So it was, uh, it was good to get her thoughts on that. Absolutely. And what have you done this week? Any gossip? I've mainly been busy training. Um, I ran a a virtual training course, an online training course on the fundamentals of editing, especially if you're having to edit your colleagues. Always a slightly tricky thing. So um, I shared some uh, some tips and tricks in my course there and then did a a, a Zoom workshop essentially with um, some live editing training as well, which was really good fun. How about you? I've had a sneak peek of some of those and they're amazing. Um, I've just been getting ready. I'm chairing a Global Meat Alliance uh, call later this week um, with Diana Rogers, who is an editor and director of a new film called Sacred Cow. So uh, quite exciting to having a chat with her later this week. Oh, fantastic. I'll be very interested to hear what you made of the film and the chat with her. Should we start the show? Mary, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks very much for having me. Could you briefly introduce yourself and tell our listeners how you're connected to the food industry? Yes, certainly. Uh, My name's Mary Johnson. I work for Meat and Livestock Australia. I'm the market access manager based in the UK, um, but I have responsibility for the UK and Europe. Um, And Meat and Livestock Australia is a producer, so a farmer-owned research and development and marketing corporation. Um, So we represent Australian beef, sheep meat and goat farmers. Um, And my job over here in Europe and the UK is very much uh, trade policy and market access. Um, So improving Australian red meat producers access to um, the EU and UK market. Fantastic. And I think your first article gets us straight into all things trade policy and and market access, quite from a different perspective. Why don't you tell us about your first pick for us? Yes, certainly, Julia. My first pick today is a Politico article um, titled UK landowners warn of lamb surplus after a no-deal Brexit. Um, So the article uh, outlines that, that the UK sheep meat industry is probably the most vulnerable sector um, when it comes to shocks uh, in the case of a no-deal Brexit um, and outlines, you know, that the tariffs, if there was no trade deal agreed between the UK and the EU, would be um, extremely detrimental to the industry and could see about 2 million uh, sheep meat carcasses left on the UK market uh, with no consumer homes to go to. Um, 89% of UK sheep meat exports do go to the EU, so 
the, um, the, the nature of the relationship between the UK and the EU market and the single market that has been in place for over 40 years uh, is extremely important to the sector. But it also outlines some other sectors at risk, uh, including beef, uh, dairy, fruit and vegetables to the EU. So I guess from my perspective, um, the reason I find the article interesting is, as I said earlier, um, I represent Australian sheep meat producers. Um, so watching the way that the trade dynamics and the trade flow will work from at this stage, 1 January 2021, is uh, extremely interesting. Um, and the flow on effects that that might have for the global sheep meat market will certainly be worth watching. You're right. And I think um, it's fair to say the industry are really concerned, aren't they? And, it, and it's outlined in the article. One thing I wanted to chat to you about when I read the article, and I thought it was a great pick of yours, was it doesn't necessarily talk about carcass balance. And when it talks necessarily about beef and, and the, the surplus um would have a beef that isn't necessarily the case because we're not self-sufficient in beef but as we know UK consumers eat certain parts of a carcass and not others but less so on sheep but but very much on beef well but you know um, Australia are a massive exporting nation how do you see that playing out and I guess is there an opportunity because if a product is cheaper then UK consumers are going to buy more of it but can you ever trade people into products that they're not necessarily used to buying fifth quarter and that sort of thing yeah, it's a really good point, Lauren, really good question. I mean, in terms of um, the way that the, the trade uh, works at the moment, and, and as you correctly point out, carcass balance, you know, for it's not carcasses that are necessarily being traded around the world as they were, you know, 20, 30 years ago. Um, and when it comes to UK sheep meat exports to the EU, it's very much those shoulder and, and loin cuts. Um, and the UK market has a real interest um, you know, particularly the pubs and um, and food service industry in in roasts, so lamb legs, uh, and the way that the Australian and New Zealand sheep meat industry um, work in particularly the UK market is back backfilling the requirement for for leg cuts, particularly into the UK. So, um, you know, I guess we see an opportunity. Um, uh, particularly if there is a trade deal between the UK and the EU to continue supplying that market from an Australian perspective. Um, but we are very closely watching that outcome because, yeah. um, you know, if there is a no deal, as we said, there'll be there'll be additional product left in the market. And a lot of consumers not necessarily knowing what to do with some of those cuts. And what's the mood music in Australia about those trade negotiations and the kind of Brexit negotiations um, at the moment? Are you generally sensing that, that people are quite optimistic that there will be a positive outcome for Australian producers in terms of market access and relationship with the UK going forward? Or are they more concerned that... Um, that the access might become more difficult or perhaps even that there'll be growing emphasis on British grown and produced meat? Yeah, I mean, I think um, Australia and the UK have a long relationship, um, you know, both culturally and, and in a trading trading um, uh, mechanism. So I think uh, there's, a, there's positivity around the fact that we have an opportunity to negotiate a deal with the UK. Um, Red meat products and agricultural products specifically are often sensitive when it comes to trade deals. I think there is um, optimism uh, that a deal will be done quickly um, from a from a political level, but um, you know 
I guess we've experienced a lot of trade negotiations and, and they don't tend to happen quickly, um, particularly when there's no opportunity really to negotiate face-to-face -face as, as there is at the moment. But, you know, from an Australian um, perspective uh, in the red meat sector, we're looking not necessarily to one market, we're looking to a diverse number of markets. Um, and the UK's been a long-term customer for us. So we see it as an opportunity really to look to the future and, and hopefully get a good deal for our red meat products. Um, and, um, but, but it needs to be a deal that has positive outcomes for UK farmers as well. Julia, what's your first pick this week? So my first pick this week is from Wired and it's a piece called I Saved My Pub Money on Lockdown to Build a Mighty Salmon Empire. This article is part of a new series of personal essays that Wired is running on how the lockdown has changed people's lives. And this particular essay was written by Andrew Woodhouse, who is a financial events marketer from London. Now, he explains that he really used to enjoy fishing when he was young and always dreamed of smoking his own salmon and trout, but life, as in as is so often the case, got in the way. So he went to university, he got a job, and as he puts it, he went to the pub instead of going down to the river to fish. Um, and then lockdown happened. Pubs closed, of course, initially, which meant Andrew was looking for new ways to spend his time. Um, and it also meant that he suddenly had a bit of spare cash. And so he decided to use that opportunity to rekindle that childhood dream of smoking his own fish and spent the money on building his own salmon smoker. And there's a great bit of detail on how exactly he built the smoker and then how he managed to get hold of um, all sorts of different equipment with quite some ingenuity and, and great bartering. Um, but the key thing here is that he basically started um, teaching himself how to smoke salmon. He was also put on furlough from his job um, early on um, in April. So that, again, gave him further incentive and time also to to pursue this passion with a, a degree of seriousness. So he built the smoker, got himself some fish from Billingsgate Market, again, finding the right supplier on that took some time and some trial and error, as he explains. And then he just started sending to friends and colleagues. Word started to spread. He set up an Instagram page. And now he runs this micro business called Andrew's Smokehouse, and he sells his salmon uh, to, to the public. And he seems to be doing pretty good business based on uh, what the article is saying. What I thought was so interesting here, though, and that's really why I, um, I picked the article, is, you know, he's been taken off furlough again. So he's back doing his old job four days a week. He's having to balance this sort of smoking salmon passion with having a, a, a full time job. But because of that lockdown experience and because he's had this opportunity to reconnect with a childhood passion, he is intent on keeping up his trips to Billingsgate and keeping up this new business um, and, and keep running this, this micro smokery, essentially, and smoked salmon business that, that he's built up. And for me, this touches on so many of the themes that we've talked about quite a bit on the podcast and, and more generally about, you know, I think these sort of food based businesses often have a particularly strong pull, don't they? And they're often sort of based or rooted in, in kind of childhood experiences and dreams around food. And I do wonder how many people have gone through lockdown 
and come out of lockdown having reconnected with some of those early childhood food passions and have perhaps also come out of it with know perhaps a slightly different sense of where their priorities are in terms of striking the right balance between a job that you know brings in the money and something that's a little bit more passion focused so I'd imagine we're going to start seeing quite a few more of these um, of these micro businesses these micro producers and I think it's a really exciting development. Mary What did you make of the piece? And are there any sort of food passions that you reconnected with during lockdown? Any new hobbies, cooking hobbies you took up? Yeah, certainly. Um, I mean, I thought it was a great article. Um, You know, his his kind of trial and error, as you say, when he was building his his smoking equipment um, and and he's obviously not much of a handyman. So it was interesting (laughs) to see how he got through all of that. I mean, I thought to begin with that he might have just gone out and just caught his own salmon. I was glad to see that he eventually kind of upscaled <laughs> and uh, was going to Billingsgate. But I mean, I found um, I did some some great cooking during lockdown. Um, I think there was some really inspiring chefs that were providing opportunities to to try different things. Um, you know, people like. Um, Yosha Motolenghi um, using different platforms like Instagram to help uh, educate people about food. Um, I know my sister in Australia was really into bread making until she was banned from using the oven. Um, <laughs> but um, yeah, I mean, I think I, I do think though at, at the other end of the spectrum when people were able to go out and go to restaurants again, everyone had had enough of cooking for themselves. So I, I, I definitely concur with your comments about how he's going to be able to balance that, um, you know, professional nine to five job with the, the, the fish smoking on the side. Um, and also I was a bit disappointed to hear he um, had kind of eaten his fill of smoked salmon and has had to <laughs> transition into other smoked goods. So it'll be interesting to see what else he comes up with. I love the article as well, and I really like that authenticity, that you really got the sense of who he was and what he was about, and I even had a little look on his Instagram page, because that sort of story and buy-in, I think, as you say, is great for food brands, and... I guess for some consumers, it stops you thinking about, well, how much does it cost? I'm not too bothered about the the price point because I know I'm getting something quality, niche and authentic and it doesn't need to maybe worry so much. And it was interesting about um, him using Instagram as a sales platform and how, um, you know, 30 customers a week or something he was saying and how Instagram is becoming more and more food a platform for selling food. I thought that was really interesting and connecting consumers with the suppliers. Laura, what's your first pick this week? Uh, my first pick this week is from the Sunday Times and it's um, a well-covered article uh, about Asda and the Issa brothers buying Asda for £6.8 billion, um, and they're partnering with T- uh, TDR Capital, the venture capitalists. Um, and there's been a huge amount of press, surprisingly, around this move and the, uh, the the fact that Asda's coming back into British ownership for the first time in 20 years and there's been a lot of press about the supply and all the rest of it. But the reason I like this article, it's entitled Welcome to the Supermarket of the Future. 
Uh, and it talks quite a lot about not only the brothers themselves, and it talks about the fact that the Euro Garages empire really grew off the back of these big oil um, companies stepping away from um, some of the, the, the petrol retail. And as um, their empire grew into 6,000 forecourts across 10 countries, they had that buying power to be able to partner with the likes of Starbucks and Greggs uh, and other suppliers. And as you know, if you go into one of these garages now, it is a retail experience, which is so different than uh, 20 years ago when it said a, a typical motorist might have picked up a packet of cigarettes and a bag of crisps, and you would. But now you go in there and it's not even necessarily just for fuel. It's for that that, that shopping experience of maybe convenience and to grab your lunch or whatever it may be, but also what you're eating tonight and to try and get... Um, to get more purchase that way and this move is very much to try and get Asda into those stores and to also get Asda more into the convenience market. What the article goes on to say is as we know um, online sales have absolutely boomed and they're now up to 13% of grocery but um, bricks and mortar are still the, the majority of where sales are going and still really important but it talks a lot about online um, stores and actually a lot more picking being done on online um, picking for online done in stores. Outside stores, a fleet of self-drive uh, vehicles could be hooked up to electric uh, charging points and workers and even robots will ferry click and collect orders to customers waiting in their uh, cars. And it says the changes could be a cu accumulation of 26 years of slow progress. And I guess that entrepreneurial nous that's going to come into Asda and their changes is going to shake up the whole retail uh, market and the whole grocery market, which is going to be fascinating to watch. Um, there's some great sound bites in the article, and one of the ones that I particularly liked was from uh, the ex-Sainsbury's boss, Justin King, who's obviously now on the M&S board. And he says, you don't make profit out of car parks directly, but if you don't have one, you don't have a shop. And online is a bit like that. You need to be able to develop a relationship with your customers. And because very few people shop only online, the customers that can be some of the most profitable ones to be able to get that online and also um, uh, bricks and mortar sales. So they've bought 630 shops for that bargain price of uh, 6.8 billion. How fast do you think we're going to see changes? And um, I guess, can I come to you first, Julia? Because back in your grocer days, you would have been writing pages and pages on this, I'm guessing. What are your thoughts? I'm, I'm intrigued. I, I certainly would have been editing pages and pages. Um, <laughs> I, I, I didn't necessarily do a lot of the retailer coverage, actually, when I was at the grocer. I was always a little bit more supplier focused, but uh, certainly as my well, yes, certainly in my, in my role as, um, <laughs> as, as editor. Now, I think it's been really fascinating to watch. And I, I actually, I think the grocer team, is, as they always do for these big stories, um, they've done some really, really great coverage around that. Some fantastic sort of explainer pieces. The Sunday Times piece, I think, is great. It tells the story of um, really how this development fits in with the wider grocery landscape and I think is taking very much that that online angle looking at the opportunities around sort of micro fulfillment through through stores but um, I think there's just a really interesting story to be told about um, you know how exactly what is the motivation behind that acquisition and what does the new ownership mean um, and yeah, I think that the grocer team have put out um, some some great explainers on that. I saw they did a really interesting uh, Q and A actually with the um, Asda CFO as well, 
kind of just really taking the temperature and talking a little bit about from an ASDA perspective. So we've heard a lot about the motivations for the ISA brothers behind the acquisition, but of course, this is a really big change um, for ASDA as well. So it's interesting to see how, um, you know, they're, they're sort of excited about the opportunities that come with that and, and the kind of scope it gives them to um, to now take a slightly different um, strategic role. So yes, I think it's um, it's one of those really sort of big landmark deals that um, everyone is excited about, everyone is talking about, I think is now going to take some time to really unfold but, um, until we see exactly what, what the implications of that are. But I think um, ASDA will be a fascinating one to watch over the coming months now. What are your thoughts, Mary? Because you always think of Australia having that duopoly. And when you come into the, the UK and it's, it's such a crowded grocery retail market, and I guess that's one of the things that always comes out from these articles is the too many players from looking from the outside in. What do you make of it all? Well, I definitely concur with your comment, Laura, about some of the sound bites in the article. One that I really liked was um, that online operations are seen as a tool to keeping promiscuous customers loyal. Um, and I think you're right, you know, when it comes to when there are so many players in the market, it's difficult to know where you're getting the best deal or, um, you know, what exactly it is that you're looking for. And, and I think the fact that it's taken such a long time for um, people to move away from the bricks and mortar um, shopping experience and towards online, and it's taken such a, you know, to use the, the word of the year, unprecedented event to really push people into um to online um, grocery buying, you know, it'll be interesting to see whether that is a long-term shift um, and, and, you know, what it takes to really move people away from um, the, the physical experience. I mean, I think the article talks about um, the fact that you don't actually need to see a can of baked beans to actually know that you want to purchase them, but I think people do like that experience. I think it'll, it will be interesting, but yeah, certainly, um, moving from our, our supermarket duopoly in Australia where, um, you know, there, there has been changes over the last few years where there have been uh, new players entering the market and, and they have been gaining really uh, good ground. But when it comes to online sales, being in the UK during, um, during this year and having all of these different options for um, retailers who are providing uh, online um, services for groceries, I was, you know, I really was thinking about um, how the Australian retailers would cope. And I know that they, they did definitely struggle when it came to uh, increasing their capability for, for home delivery for groceries as well. Mary, what's your second article for us? My second article today uh, is a Guardian piece on MNS um, cutting soya from production of milk to curb deforestation. Um, and the article outlines the fact that MS has uh, decided to eliminate soya from their milk production, uh, which is part of their goal of zero deforestation in, in all of its food production. Um, and it, it outlines the way that they've worked with British farmers to, um, to replace soya with feed alternatives, so things like uh, rapeseed oil and sugar beet. Um, and I think, you know, it, it really fits into that category of um, that The Guardian has been running on, which is the, the emphasis on deforestation, um, particularly in, in relation to forests in South America. Um, you know, 
for for feed um, feed products for uh, milk production, for example, but also for um, for the red meat um, sector. Um, but I guess you know the, the real reason that it piqued my interest was uh, because at a policy level, we're seeing. Uh, the EU consulting on um, with with their um, member states on deforestation um, and forest degradation, uh, and particularly, you know, in terms of uh, reducing the impact of products that are sold on the EU market, and also uh, in the UK, um, there has been a, a consultation launched on reducing deforestation in the UK supply chain. So, I I find it very interesting when at a policy level um, there's conversations happening and, and consultation with stakeholders, uh, but then when a retailer makes the move to really um, up the ante, I guess, and, and, and make a commercial decision, uh, which will really flow through the supply chain and, and probably um, make a difference at, at a much faster pace than any policy changes could make. Um, and I mean, I think, you know, um, there, there's examples of, of other uh, retailers or food service outlets that have, have made similar commitments um, through time where, where they've elected to, um, to, for example, with McDonald's, uh, Rainforest Alliance coffee beans, and, you know, and, and that's really um, making a commitment like that really uh, enacts change, at, as I say, at a much faster pace. And I think you're totally right, Mary, in terms of that differentiation, that players go for it and, and M&S and Waitrose are t- tend to be the first to go, go for some of these, um, I guess, pledges and changes. And, and we've seen it time and time again, and you're right, that there's always these policy discussions, but until a commercial player goes for it and actually has that cl- closer relationship with their supply chain to understand what's happening at the moment and what's needed to be able to make changes for the future, and then we can talk to our consumers about it. I think that that is the key, isn't it? And it'll be interesting to see if some of the others follow suit. And and Mary, I was interested in what you were saying about um, deforestation really, I think, having risen as a, as a sort of key sustainability um, topic in, in, in recent months. Is that reflected in Australia as well? It, has deforestation been a, a major topic of debate? Are, you, are we seeing similar sort of retailer commitments um, down under as well? I don't think so at this stage, Julia. I mean, I think, you know, when we talk about, when we look at trends that are flowing through the retail landscape, they tend to be um, led in Europe and and the UK and and particularly, you know, UK retailers kind of leading the charge. Um, But certainly I think when we see see a retailer make a move like this, it definitely um, kind of peaks the interest and, and, and it makes us think a little bit more about what it is that those um, customers and end users are looking for in product. Um, uh, so, you know, it, it, there's a number of examples, I guess, it, less deforestation, but more on the sustainability front, you know, how can, how can Australian producers outline their commitment to sustainability um, and, and how does that, I think, as you said, Laura, you know, how, how are we working with our supply chains to ensure that, that the, the, the commitments that are being made um, can be actionable by, by an industry sector? 
And reading the article, I was also reminded, um, you know, we, we've talked about sort of several articles um, here on, on the podcast, but there really does appear to be much more of a focus on animal feed supply chains of late, you know, whether it's in the context of, of soy and, and deforestation, or whether it's about um, adding things to, to animal feed to, to deal with methane emissions. Um, I just, I, it feels like that, that the sort of public debate around and um, I think particularly um, animal proteins is just becoming much more granular. And we're talking about not just where the meat is coming from and how it was perhaps reared, but I think there's now a, a public debate that really focuses on some of the inputs and, and animal feed in, in particular. Yeah, and I mean, I think um, I think you're absolutely right. It's, it's very much getting down to that granular level, um, which we absolutely wouldn't have seen you know, I don't think two years ago. Um, so it's it's that kind of rapid change and and um, you know further interest in 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 how our, our products are, are being produced. Julia, what's your second pick this week? My second pick this week is from the spoon, and it continues the sustainability theme that uh, Mary started with with her article. Um, so this is an article called "Danone North America Implements Lattice." to determine ingredient sustainability. Lattice or Latis is a food sustainability platform operated by a company called How Good, which essentially helps determine the source location, sustainability standard, and environmental impact of ingredients. Um, and as the headline suggests, they've just gained Danone North America as a new client or partner. The way Lattice works is it's essentially a database of 30,000 ingredients, chemicals and materials which are tracked and categorized according to the ingredients impact on greenhouse gas emissions, water usage, soil health, animal welfare, labor risks and working conditions. So it's quite a comprehensive range of factors. I thought that was quite eye-catching because there are of course quite a lot of different schemes that will focus on any one of those um, factors. I think they're really trying to um, to, to paint a comprehensive um, picture from sustainability to welfare to, to sort of labor conditions. Um, and the idea is that, that food producers, food manufacturers such as Danone will use the insight to determine the, the sustainability of ingredients found in existing products, but then also use that for new product development. You know, you can use the data to come up with an ingredient list, an ingredient deck that very much um, meets consumer expectations on, on, on those sort of ingredients. And it really is part of this sort of growing trend, growing consumer trend, to really want to understand what's in products that they're buying and the environmental impact, I think in particular, of various ingredients. We just talked about animal feed. I think that's an important part of that. But I think it's it's just, you know, raising the bar, I think, for food companies, food producers and retailers in terms of that granularity of information that they will increasingly need to capture and provide. And that's quite complex you know if you're dealing with multi-ingredient products I think it's hard enough actually often you know doing achieving complete traceability and that level of transparency on on sort of you know primary produce but when you're dealing with multi-ingredient products it's a serious undertaking and I suppose that's where these services such as Lattice come in and, and provide a sort of 
um, you know, really structured approach to looking at those ingredients. Danone certainly seems determined to, to do this. And the article points out the company, um, Danone North America specifically, is the world's largest B Corp. And of course, initiatives like these, initiatives on ingredient transparency and traceability, they're very much in line with that B Corp ethos um, and, and speak to sort of wanting to create greater transparency for, for consumers. What really fascinates me here is um, how they will communicate what they find in their ingredients to the public and if they do communicate that. Um, the article doesn't really go into this and it sounds, reading between the lines, it sounds like it's a bit more of an internal tool at this stage, perhaps something to kind of, you know, inform NPD decisions and, and sort of supply chain management. But of course, communicating what you have found in your supply chains and what impact you have um, determined your ingredients have, that is also a big part of the sustainability story and the sort of um, transparency story. So I think it'll be really fascinating to see how they ultimately uh, take that knowledge, take the data they're getting from this new partnership and then turn it into something that doesn't just track and capture information, but also helps consumers make sense of, of the information that they have found. Mary, what did you make of the piece? And do you see growing pressure on, on companies to really get down to that super granular level of knowing exactly what the impact is from every ingredient? Yeah, I mean, I, I think um, just the, the sheer diversity of the information that's being collected just you know, blew my mind in the sense that uh, you, I think you you hit the nail on the head there in terms of well, is it is it an internal um, benchmarking or product sourcing tool that that Danone is looking at, at utilizing um, for their own internal decision making, or is it another um, you know? I guess when you think about the the information that consumers are looking at when they're purchasing. A ready meal or, or a product from the shelf you know they've already they're already being bombarded by nutritional information um and, and you know this is suggesting that they'll be able to see the greenhouse gas impact water use soil health animal welfare the labor um you know the the, the labor use that goes into the product and i mean i think you know when you look at some products that have you know 20 different ingredients how do you communicate that information in a way that resonates with consumers or, you know, or, or provides any, um, any valuable information back to consumers. I mean, I, I, I can understand, um, understand the importance of, of being able from an internal um, company perspective in, in collecting that information and the internal benchmarking, but, but where does it go in the future, I guess, is, is the main question for me. And, um, yeah, I guess, you know, is there is there a heightened desire? Are customers going to, to vote with their feet and purchase products just because it includes that additional information? Um, you know, what are, what are we missing out on um, at the moment and, and how can we communicate it in a, in a clear and concise manner, I guess? And I wonder if, if a first port of call will for them, for the consumer side, to be saying we're doing it and at a group level we're keeping at X target and if you want to find out more there's a QR code on pack and you can go through to the website and look at all the amazing metrics but you're right that for if you think in a Danone's product portfolio a lot of them are going to be very quick purchases where people aren't going to be 
analysing the pack in detail. So maybe it's that differentiator around, well, we're doing something different. Laura, what's your second article for us? My second article this week's from The Grocer, and it's Tesco targets 300% rise in plant-based sales by 2025 in sustainability push. I picked this for a couple of reasons, um, mainly because uh, Mary's on the show and it's, uh, I was very keen to, to get her thoughts on it uh, and I thought I'd pick it before she did. Uh, and also I thought it was a really interesting move by Tesco. Um, they've committed to this 300% rise in sales of plant-based meat alternatives by 2025 as part of a plan to halve the environmental impact of the average UK shopping basket. So we're, we're continuing in that sustainability theme. Um and what this is actually part of is Tesco have partnered with the WWF uh, for the retail retailers a sustainable basket metric. And it's interesting. I've had a little look on their website this afternoon actually about that. And it's a, a list of different metrics, um, be it, you know, sustainable, deforestation, all the things that we've already spoken about and percentages against each and, and then measures the impact. And Tesco is saying as part of its pledge to improve visibility, it's committed to providing a meat-based, sorry, a plant-based alternative uh, for every meat-based product. And that's absolutely massive when you think about, you know, the range of meat products and there's going to be a plant-based alternative for each. And Tesco is also committed to publishing the sales of plant-based proteins as a percentage of overall protein sales every year. So me looking at this, I think 2025 is not very far off. The other thing I think is 300% increase from a very, very small base. So it'll be really interesting to see um, how actually um, the figures look when they do start publishing them. And also, there's a quote from um, Dave Lewis, the outgoing CEO towards the end of the article, who talks sort of broadly about food waste and sustainability um, uh, business messages. But within the article and also on the website, it's not quite clear what they're saying the savings would be and what measurements they're using in terms of meat being perceived as unsustainable. And I guess um, our friends at the National Farmers Union and other UK producers and Tesco's are, are buying a lot of UK uh, meat, predominantly UK and Irish meat. They would say, well, UK production, grass-based production is sustainable. What metrics are you using? So it's maybe back to your earlier comment, Julia. What what are they using to measure this? And is it global stats or, or more local stats? Mary, I know I nicked the article from you. What are your thoughts? <laughs> yeah, you did. I, I should have got in earlier. I mean, I, I think <laughs> your comment, Laura, about, um, you know, the fact that they're publishing or they're, 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 they've announced that they're going to publish data against overall protein sales is, is a really interesting move, um, you know, because I know from a, from a red meat perspective, we look at, we benchmark, you know, beef against chicken or lamb against pork in Australia. Um, so, you know, those are our competitors, but to actually hit um, plant-based um, proteins against, against the meat sector is really interesting. And, and I also think, um, the comment that's made about um, positioning um, the the meat based uh, the the plant based alternative next to meat products uh, is an interesting move as well, and and I think that um, from a meat sector perspective that that might raise a few eyebrows um, along the way. But um, you know, I, I do think that uh, the the comments made in the article around um, Tesco's leadership in in um, publishing the food waste data. Um, you know, and the implications that that has had kind of goes back to that earlier article that, that we discussed uh, where M&S um, have made announcements. You know, it really takes 
a retailer to up the ante and and put themselves out there and, and be ambitious about targets in order to really make changes. Um, so, you know, I mean, I think uh, it, it's certainly ambitious, I guess, um, you know, whatever products they're pitting against meat products will have to be to the to the customer requirements. Um, you know, I think um, they'll obviously need to be, uh, they mentioned in the article, um, you know, ongoing product um, product innovation to ensure that there is, is repeat buy when it comes to people purchasing the alternative products. Um, but, you know, when it comes to affordability, um, you know, we know that, that that purse strings are going to be relatively tight over the next five years. So that may, um, may provide uh, opportunities for them to really promote that sector. Do you, and I think it's really interesting, your comments there, because you think um, the M&S article was changing the supply chain to make it more sustainable for the product that the consumer wanted, whereas this is uh, listing more products that, obviously, consumers are wanting more and more plant-based products that, from the research that they're chatting about. But is this really what consumers want, or a Tesco feeling that they should and for a retailer to do something against what consumers are buying to such a high degree feels a bit alien julia am i too close to this being a, a meat person give us Possibly. an honest yeah. <laughs> I think, cool I us think, down <laughs> no because i i think you know 300 percent growth is uh you know obviously sounds like quite a lot but as you say it's, it's from a relatively small base and the growth is there. I mean, this is a this yeah. is a really fast growing market. There is no shortage of innovation. Um, I'm writing. I'm right in the middle of writing a really big article on plant based. So I'm I'm quite close to to that topic at the moment. Um, yeah, innovation isn't isn't the problem here. I mean, this is a really busy, really quite crowded um, sector. The debate isn't about. Um, are there enough products and is there enough consumer demand potentially? It's it's more about how do retailers even prioritize what they're giving shelf space to. Um, I I think what is what's interesting here is actually um, is the affordability angle that also caught my eye, Mary, uh, like it did for you because I think um, you know you can still even with a three hundred percent increase um, in in sales over that period. And because the numbers are so small still, you can also still have really strong performance for meat and from dairy in in that as well. I think the two, you know, the the two markets are such different sizes that both of those are potentially compatible. Um, But I think affordability is really interesting. And so far, that plant-based sector, um, I think, has often been pushing that more premium angle partly because you have a lot of challenger brands um, in, in that space, the ones that are really creating a lot of excitement, not the sort of more traditional vegetarian brands. They are, you know, they've got quite expensive kit and technology that they're using to make their products. And so that's, you know, some of those products are quite pricey. But there is, of course, an opportunity to say that if you're using plant-based ingredients and they are considerably cheaper than animal protein, that you can create products that are suddenly appealing, not just from a health and environmental or whatever perspective, but that are actually just having a real price advantage. The other thing that I'm watching with great interest that I feel like hasn't been pushed quite so much, but is, is that idea of blended products. Um, you know, there are lots of people who are sort of really interested in the potential to say, 
if we're dealing with a flexitarian consumer, i.e. someone who isn't ideologically wedded to to veganism or, or vegetarianism, but is looking to reduce their meat consumption to some extent, can you price engineer, can you come up with a really compelling range of blended products that, you know, blend plant-based proteins with meat um, and sort of hit that that affordability as well as um, obviously uh, speaking to consumers who want to be reducing their meat consumption. I don't know, Mary, whether what, what your, your sense is of, of the potential of those blended products. Yeah, I mean, you certainly, you, you do, do hear a lot about them. And, and I mean, I think when it comes to affordability, certainly if you could, if you could pad out um, a product um, that, uh, you know, it includes some meat product and, and a vegetarian product, then I think that that speaks to the, the issue, you know, I mean, we know that um, while, while customers talk about you know, the sustainability and animal welfare concerns that they have around their, their purchase points, at the end of the day, the price of the grocery basket is really the thing that they're thinking about when they're walking out the supermarket door. I guess the other thing that that I was thinking about, um, you know, when it comes to affordability and and I guess thinking outside the box when people are, are slightly um, conscious of, of what they're spending money on. I mean, you know, we saw we saw mince um, sales absolutely fly out the door in in March and April as people were really struggling to get their heads around um, cooking on a budget or, or being at home all the time. So I think, um, you know, Tesco as the retailer will will no doubt be putting a lot of effort into the, um, the, the marketing or, you know, it, trying to get customers to try these products um, as they are next to the, the meat-based products as well. So, you know, I'll certainly be um, watching with interest um, and, yeah, no, we'll, we'll see where it all lands. And something you always say, Julian, it always resonates. And I was looking at uh, in a Tesco last week, actually, and just looking at the merchandising around the meat category and the plant-based. And you always say, Julian, when you were on the grocery, you'd get a press release from a meat-based, um, sorry, a plant-based company, and it would be loads of images. It would be really sexy. It would look great. You would have access to anyone you wanted to chat to. Whereas the meat industry, you would get a press release, just a reactive statement when something went wrong. And it would probably be a picture of outside of a factory. And I was thinking of those comments when I was walking up and down the fixture because the plant-based um, uh, footage looked amazing. It was bright. It was branded. It was funky. It was had recipe ideas. It had, and it might well have just you know been an unfortunate store, but the the signage around that fixture looked great, inviting. And I turned behind me and looked at the massive run of meat, and there was hardly any branding. You know, no inspiration. It felt cold, and it just didn't make you feel hungry. And I always think, um, if you're buying meat, you know, and you know, if you go to a, a really good butcher shop it should make you feel hungry because it gives you recipe inspiration uh, and the the plant-based market are doing that really well and the meat industry need to to sharpen up on that I'd say. It's certainly very interesting um, in the UK just the the sheer diversity of the plant-based sector you know I think just the the number of um, customers in the market just means that it is so much more evolved than in the Australian market. Um, you know, it, it, it'll be a really interesting test for, for Tesco's, I think, just the fact that there is, you know, it, it's such an open market, there's so many opportunities to test different things, um, you know, and then to potentially see um, the flow through effects in other markets. 
Totally. And of course, I think it's worth keeping in mind that, yes, there are all these challenger brands. And of course, you know, I'm being a little bit unfair because it's uh, when I whenever I complained about the meat industry's rather dour um, <laughs> media outreach in comparison to some of the others. If you're a challenger brand, all of that is so much easier than if you're a, a big corporate. Um, but of course, you know, there are some, you know, quite a few meat, meat processors, meat companies that are, you know, very active in that plant based sector as well. They are absolutely um, taking advantage of that opportunity as well. So it's not always necessarily a case of, you know, this is sort of meat versus plant based and never the twain shall meet. I, I think there are lots of opportunities for, for those two sectors and company within various sectors to uh, to take advantage of, of, of that trend as well. You're totally right. And that's where we're seeing that innovative comms and branding and to the, to, to push that down some of their retailer brands as well would be great. So Mary, it's been a pleasure having you on. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you very much, Laura and Julia. It was lovely to chat to you. That's all we have for you this week. Thank you so much for listening. You can find links to the articles we discussed in the show notes at thepicklist.co.uk. If you enjoyed our show, please subscribe, give it a rating and leave a review. It makes a massive difference to our podcast and helps us reach more people in the food industry who'd enjoy listening to The Pick List. Thanks again for listening. See you next time.